This podcast is brought to you by PencilPay. Take your wholesale account applications online and control when you get paid. Welcome to Product Hub. I'm your host, Tim Dimitriou, and in this episode, we interview Dermot Dowling. He's the founder of BeerCo, responsible for homebrew kits for early stage brewers and the very best hops, malt, and barley for large commercial breweries. We talk about everything from BeerCo's origin story to supply chains and the effect that short-sighted government policy is now having on alcohol producers and licensed venues. Dermot is super insightful and super smart, and you're going to love this podcast. When he, so he went to, I think he went to Japan and then yes. he went to, um, where else did he go? He went to America and, and, you know, and, and did all that piece. And he just said that the, the, um, the speed and uptake of, of Australia as opposed to Japan was just crazy. Like Japan was, they just like to do everything slowly, but do it properly. Yes. You know, so, yes, and which is basically very, you know, <laughs> that's pretty understandable, I guess. Yes. Yeah, so, and Japan, they're very risk averse, but that said, I used to work at Lion Dairy and Drinks and they were owned by um, Kirin and um, they launched something crazy like their non-alcoholic beverages division would launch something like a hundred different non-alcoholic beverages every summer. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and then you'd ask them, you know, what's working and how many of them stick and it was like one in a hundred and one of their most popular products was like a lemon water, sparkling lemon water and it'd been around for 20 years. Yeah. And I said, why are you launching that many products? They said, oh, because Suntory launches 120 and Asahi launches 80 or something, you know. So yeah, they they do stuff on mass, but but to the um, the Japanese are very ris- ris- risk averse. It sounds know. like um, it sounds like VCs. Yes. With VCs, they'll go and have, you know, they'll have you know 10, 10 investments, and yes. um, the reason why they always go for ones that you know are pitching a billion dollar idea is because they need they actually need for that billion dollar idea to pay off, or else they can't get their money back. So yeah. their their kind of goal is to do ten investments, and potentially one might pay one one would pay off. Yeah. Um, but that's why it has to be. You yes. know, has to be a hundred, hundred X. Yes. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly. just, which is just crazy. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. Mate. So, um, are we up, are we up and going, Tommy? Are we recording? We are. Audio? Those ones, yeah, so. yeah. Cool. Perfect. Awesome. Mate. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation, Tim. Um, so mate, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, a little bit about you as opposed to a little bit about Beer Co as a starting sure. point? Sure. Okay. So my background, um, I guess, you know, how I ended up doing Beer Co and in the brewing industry is um, I'm a home brewer originally and started home brewing when I was very young, like high school age and um, through university years, took time out uh, when I was earning in my early 20s and that sort of thing, um, was busy traveling and I traveled with work. I was fortunate to travel through Asia and then into the UK Um Landed back in Australia in about 20, 2003, actually. Um, so I've been here for you know, nearly 20 years. And um, I was working at a big brewer originally at Foster's and uh, looking after their marketing through Southeast Asia. And I used to pester all the brewers about, you know, why don't you make some beers with flavour? And they'd laugh at me and that sort of thing. And, um, and then after I did that, I worked in uh, dairy and drinks business, which ironically got purchased by Lion. And I worked in um, Southeast Asia. So I've always had an international business focus. And uh, after, oh gosh, I don't know how many years of corporate, I decided to do some consulting and I was helping food businesses. But I kept sort of getting pulled back to um, 
uh, the brewing industry and it's just something I've always loved and it's been really exciting to um, start a business in the brewing industry um, but I sort of felt like when it was quite funny when I started Beerco and going back 2013 I remember stewarding at the Beer Awards and there was just all these beers coming from around the world and I thought why am I thinking of starting a brewery because it's you know there's already all these great breweries from around the world and and then I said there's already well, maybe then there was 50 or 100 craft breweries in Australia now there's 650 so I thought there was probably a better opportunity for me personally and um, that I could serve the industry better if I worked on the supply side mm-hmm. um, so so we started a business um, myself and a couple of friends in 2013 mainly serving home brewers directly delivering to people's doorsteps ingredients and and supplies to to make beer um, that quickly grew um, as our customers some of them were basically like all good startups they were in their garage making beer at home and then they wanted to go professional so they would start to ask for ingredients in bigger sizes and bulk and we also got approached by suppliers who were um, could see we were doing things a little bit differently and said you know would you like to take our products to craft brewers and and then we even had uh, suppliers who had products for craft distillers so we've just sort of grown organically with the industry Mm. Um, and it never stops amazing me just how fast it changes and how many new things are happening all the time. Yeah, the um, I mean, we got involved in the industry probably two years ago was our yes. first furor into the industry, and even since then, when you look at it, there's a, you know, there's probably another two hundred breweries have opened in the last probably twenty four to thirty six months or thereabouts. I would think and, so. I mean, yeah. you look at that; they've the that basically the industry would have had to have um, either almost almost doubled in that yes. period. You think about it; there may have been say 400, there's now 650, 700 um, active operating commercial breweries. It's, um, you know, it's basically doubled in three years. It's uh, it's enormous. (laughs) Yeah, and there's a lot in planning as well. So we're constantly, um, as a supplier to people in their garages as well as um, people in breweries, um, which are big garages, I guess, big sheds, um, we've constantly got people who are um, prototyping or what they call gypsy brewing, so brewing in someone else's facility and um, sending ingredients to them um, or sending ingredients to the contract brewery. So there's a lot in planning. And I think we spoke just before we started press record. Uh, the other explosion we've seen in the last couple of years is craft distillers. Mm. Um, and, and, and predominantly the growth too for both areas is into the regions. So... I think the craft distillers conference the last one I went to was 2019 before the big uh, the big flu um, and they said something north of 90% of craft distilleries are in the regions and I've certainly heard it bandied around at craft brewers conferences that maybe over 50% of craft breweries are in the region so it's a really good story for regional and rural Australia as well. There's a yeah there's a massive focus on localizing yes. things and then then growing out so yes. like owning your little patch first yes and then you know then expanding and we've seen it we've seen it with a number of the, the early growing breweries they created partnerships that were local and you know it might be partnerships with a pub and a sports mm-hmm. team and that type of thing but you know you have to start somewhere right yeah and if you can own a small patch you know yes. later on you can work out how to own a bigger patch it's, yes but you know you kind of got to uh, yeah. you have to walk before you can run i guess yes um S- saturation um so obviously the 
you know, with this scale of breweries and distilleries coming on board, yeah. do you think the market's saturated? I mean, certainly with the way I look at it with beer, with the breweries, there seems to be a lot coming on and there doesn't seem to be that much shelf space. What's your What's your feeling? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I wouldn't say saturation because, um, you know, as quickly as we say there's no room for one more, um, a new brewer will come into the industry or if it's distilling, a new distiller will come into the industry with a different angle on um, what they want to do and, and sometimes it'll just take off. So um, I think um, the industry goes through waves of evolution and revolution, but like a bicycle, you know, the wheel spins around and in some ways we've really just gone back to where brewing was in Australia in you know, pre-colonial days. Um, you mentioned local um, because in the past, and you know, 100 years ago, you didn't have refrigerated transport, you didn't have supermarkets, so you brewed beer close to where people live. And now people are connecting with whether it's local breweries or local distilleries or local artisans, whether it's cheesemakers, coffee roasters, and there is also that circular local economy. People love their um, sourdough bakeries and that. So I don't think it's saturation. I think the competition has intensified um, and, you know, Brewers are very cognizant and aware of that. And so they're also very astute business people. So when we saw the hard seltzer trend, like we talked before about <laughs> trends coming from the United States, the brewers didn't sit by and watch that happen. Um, they thought, hang on, here's a new trend coming. And you could argue that seltzer really is the domain of the spirits makers because it's like vodka, lime and sodas, and then it exploded with different flavors. Uh, but the brewers sort of said, well, hang on, we can make a neutral um, uh, soda water type or hard soda, as they would call it, and then we can flavour it and we can do all that using our existing equipment. Um, and likewise, they've even embraced non-alcoholic adult drinks so or low-alcoholic adult drinks. So brewers are sort of saying, I've got equipment here. I can brew beer. They actually also are the front end to distilleries, so some of them are cottoning on to the fact that they can not only brew beer, but they, they could also distill spirits or at least make the wash to make whiskey or um, they could even, you know, brew their own base for gins. So brewers are sort of branching out and I think we're seeing that with the new openings. Some of them come with private money and capital and, and hit the ground with a really big vision. Um, some of them are still those classic give it a crack Aussie entrepreneurs who will start in their garage and then see an opportunity in their local town and I think there's always room for more breweries um, but certainly the competition has intensified. Yeah I've, I've found that the ones that have grown really steeply in the last 12 months are d definitely doing something different. Yes. You know um, a group heaps normal and um, yes. two bays and yep. you know they've you know you got gluten free beer or your non alcoholic yes. non alcoholic beer. They're very very different to the usual you know standard way of doing things, and they're some of the ones that have really gone gone crazy over the last you know over the last twelve months that I've seen. That's um it. you know as a you know and we we get you know we we're, we're privy to you know the, the right information and you can see the growth and it's and it's really really fast. So yeah, um, yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see how all these new entrants go and you know because yeah. it's because it ain't cheap and um you know getting set up is bloody expensive you know, yeah in a, in that environment it is and it isn't so i think the interesting thing is um and it's you know it's good that you guys are doing this um 
podcast to help educate your customers about the business of, of brewing and, and, and um, managing your accounts and things like that because um, you can do things very cheaply and there have been craft brewers who have been very successful and grown over the years. Um, you can buy equipment very cheaply from China. Um, but the other thing is that um, if you do want to be a big brewer, uh, and you mentioned a couple of very successful, very you know large brewers like um, Heaps Normal or um, Two Bays who are doing very specific functional type uh, drinks, one being gluten-free and one being low no alcohol, you need to, um, and if you want to range with national retailers, you need to have expensive equipment. But again, you you know, and full credit to the Heaps Normal team, they didn't have a brewery. They had a great uh, beer that they'd prototyped in, uh, at home, like the that home brewed up, and then they went to a very large, well-established contract facility and manufactured that, which you know they had the equipment um, that was required, uh, tunnel pasteurization, things like that. So that so in the past that was never available to people, but now whether you're a food maker who creates a, an amazing gluten-free, low-sugar um, muesli bar or some cereal you can go to contract manufacturing facilities and there's plenty of contract manufacturing facilities for brewers and distillers. So you can almost test your product ideas um, without having to spend all that money on capital. Um, but so, so as long as you can, as long as you can execute sales and marketing and, and branding, which is you know, branding is so important in beer. I know that, but yes. as long as you can execute those functions, there are providers out there that can brew your beer as long as you can give them the prototype type of thing. Yeah, I think another great success story at the moment that everyone's just blown away by is Better Beer from um, Nick at Talkie Beverages and the Mighty Craft team, and oh, yeah. that's um, you know was Nick's idea, and he worked with the. Uh, um, apologies to the very famous on Instagram, the something unemployed, um, but they're contract manufacturing that beer and um, it's hitting a note with drinkers in terms of flavour and the proposition of the product. So there will always be, like we said, with beer, there'll always be these breakout success stories that'll come out of left field and people will go, wow, I didn't, didn't see that one coming. Um, but at the same time, I think if you want to own your local patch, whether it's Wagga Wagga or Bendigo or Ballarat, um, you probably need a temple there and a brewery there. So um, I think it's, you know, if you've got a very functional product that's different, like a low no alcohol beer or beverage offering or um, something like that, then maybe you can contract manufacture that. And even the Heaps Normal team have said they want their own brewery, so they've raised money to, to brew their own um, future of low no alcohol beverages. So, yeah. The... Um I mean, this podcast is is obviously about you know um, you know this one here is obviously about you know beer and breweries and that type of thing. Yes. But it's also a business podcast. Yes. So when you wanted to get started, obviously you've had a long history in business. I was yes. um, I was actually on your on your YouTube channel earlier having a little look at some of your <laughs> old, at some of your old presentations when I was a management consultant. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, That's the yeah, one. So yeah. um, you know, I had a had a had a good look through them. And um, so obviously, you know, you've got a background in business and you understand, you know, every lever and every mechanism that go into, I guess, a P&L, which is pretty yes. important. Yeah. Can you run me through the setup of Beer Co? Obviously, yep. there's, um, we know you're not a brewery. Um, yes. But you, um, you obviously need to have a lot of the aspects um, that, go into a, that go into a brewery, probably not of the machinery, but yes. um, everything else and, yep. and stock on hand. Can you run me through the... Yep the challenges of setting up a business like Beer Co and then um, kind of some of the challenges that you face early on in the piece? Yeah, sure. So I guess I took the um, 
uh, pots and pans, um, you know, bootstrapping without, uh, you know, or wearing the boots with no laces on, um, shoestring startup approach. So I started, um, you know, literally vacuum sealing hops on the kitchen table and packing up like dried malt extract, much to my wife's dismay, and she sort of kicked me out of the house. Eventually, I went into a third-party warehouse called Hunter Express down in South Dandenong. And then they eventually kicked me out of there because I started with malt down there and we shipped it to um, homebrew shops and directly to homebrewers. But then I started putting fridges in um, and running them off power boards and then <laughs> asking them to pick different things. So um, we took the approach that um, the internet and uh, doing business through the internet was a revolution. Um, I'd seen so many great internet businesses. I'd always struggled coming from the consumer packaged goods industry um, with why more companies didn't do direct sales, direct to consumer. And so we started with a website and we were really insistent on all orders being placed online. And we still are, even with our trade customers and those that we give trade terms with. And um, the reason for that is we thought it was efficient from an ordering perspective but it gave us a sense of a double check so if someone telephoned an order in and, and it happened when I moved into my warehouse in, in 2017 um, I'd be running around with the phone to my ear packing a pallet or picking products and then at the same time someone would email or so not email an order in um, order on the internet so I figured it was the fairest and most efficient way for the orders to be dispatched in order of receipt of the orders and also um, we had a printed record we could print out and then I'd witnessed through working inside warehouse and logistics companies like Hunter Express the way they do it wherever there's a person involved you have to have a double uh, a backup safety check so one person would be the picker and then another person would be the ticker and they would tick the orders and wherever um, humans are involved as you know much as we we love humans um we make mistakes so um we tried to automate everything and that was really from the point of view of making everything as efficient as possible because the other thing I was very cognizant of whether you were someone making beer at home um, or spirits at home or or a craft brewery or distillery you really want your goods as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible um so that was one of my key principles and then um building relationships with our key suppliers, many of whom value that customer base of home brewers and, and distillers and craft brewers and distillers, but they're just not simply set up to serve them um, efficiently. So so they were quite happy for us to be like their sub-distributor. Maybe they were looking after Lion Nathan or um, CUB or Asahi and, and dealing in trucks. So, you know, they were like, if you can efficiently pick, pack and dispatch pallets with multiple malts on it um, to our customers, then you're doing us a service um, as well as your customers. So we tried to look for areas where we could offer, you know, value and in the genuine sense of the word without sort of being, you know, an intermediary or a middleman who, who didn't add value. Mm hmm both for suppliers and customers. So kind of complementing the entire supply chain because there yes. are, there's obviously yep. gaps in the in every supply chain. Yeah, there is. And and obviously to imported products, so there's lots of products that brewers use and distillers use that are imported. And of course, we're just feeling absolutely excruciating pain as they are um, with the supply chain crumbling um, under the weight of you know COVID and the global stimulus and the shipping delays. So that's a real headwind that we're all facing together this year. 
Can we go into that in a bit more detail? Sure. I'd love to learn a little bit more about that because you know, if um, the people that are going to listen to this podcast are going to be brewers, and I'd love to, okay. um, you know, dig into the economic impacts of of the supply chain issues. Okay. Well, without going too far back, um, I know we were talking about crypto before, but um, basically, we've never seen a global fiscal stimulus like we have over the last couple of years. So all around the world, all the federal treasurers have printed money effectively, so pushed more money into the money supply. And our beautiful government has done it again, um, despite the fact inflation's at, 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 um, starting to pick up. So what that, and that coupled with the fact our service economy was taken away overnight, travel, restaurants, bars, cafes, etc., just caused a massive demand spike. And then... Um, the world's factory, China, has gone through some massive stresses in the last sort of 12 months. So they had energy shortages before the Beijing Olympics. They wanted the air clean and all that sort of thing. So they um, told a lot of factories and shut a lot of factories and they're playing geopolitics with coal and that. So the manufacturing side of China slowed down. And then the other thing that happened was globally, um, we had COVID outbreaks at ports and uh, we had skeleton crews in factories. Um, and effectively what we've seen is um, everyone buying more stuff, like not just a little bit more stuff. I think New South Wales bought like, it was phenomenal. It was like six times more home furnishings in, in 2021 than the previous year and stuff like that. So people have just ramped up demand and then the system has broken. And like I've been talking to brewers about it and it's open public knowledge, but we import malt from England and we've imported multiple containers the shipping was roughly speaking pretty standard, six to eight weeks. Um, the price was pretty standard. Um, we could budget that. We could get the mold in quickly, get the, get it through to our customers. And then the last container we landed just after Christmas took twice as long and cost 60% more in terms of freight. And then when we sold a lot of that stock because everyone was running out of stock, um, we went to our freight forwarders and said, we're going to need to import another container. And they said, oh, here's the bad news. The shipping price has gone up another 60%. And you're like, really? And it, it was pushing the price of just the transport cost of the malt pretty much to where we could buy um, a sack of domestic malt from our partners at Malt Europe. And so I was sort of saying, well, I can't look at my customers in the face and say, I'm going to double your malt price. And, and I was talking to a small brewer today who said he hasn't put a price rise through to um, you know, his customers for six years, but they're all getting hit. We're all getting hit with price rises. So we've sort of created a bit of a monster and the forecasts on the shipping side of things from the global shipping experts is that that monster won't start to die down until about middle of next year. So uh, people are making decisions, uh, buying less stuff and um, people will get back on planes and go for holidays to to, to see their loved ones and go to beautiful resorts and things. People are going back out to restaurants and bars. So we'd like to think that just the volume of general merchandise shipping around the world will drop. And also we'd like to think that the ports will get on top of the congestion. But at the moment, it's really, really bad. And it's really bad in the United States. It's also quite bad uh, um, in China and the shutdown Shanghai now for COVID. And also it's bad at Singapore. So... Yeah, system that worked beautifully for you know the last twenty years. Unfortunately, is quite broken and will be for about eighteen months. So, we're working really hard with all our suppliers to look for local substitute products, um, and for those essential products, we're just asking everyone to plan for um, 
much longer lead times. You know, we can't take it for granted. And even when I was shopping online yesterday at Coles or Woolworths, there's a lot of out of stocks. And I thought if those guys can't bring in, um, you know, frozen fruit or whatever it is that they're stocking in their freezers, um, uh, you know, it's really difficult for small businesses to secure raw materials. So we're just sort of encouraging people to be creative, buy local, back to the whole thing we were talking about. For uh, sure. Yeah. The, the, um, it's clear that vax mandates being across the globe destroyed the, destroyed the labor force for a, it might be a 10, 12, 14 week period there. And we know that put everything a long way behind. Yeah. It was probably a long way behind well prior to that, but yeah. that certainly didn't help. And then you've got the addition of you know seven percent inflation in the U.S. The U.K. is now up to six point three percent inflation annualized. Yes. So you know, and the U.K. is it's growing, and the whole Russia thing is is actually having all the sanctions are having a little bit of the opposite effect to what they thought that they would have, and um, they seem to be hurting the West a lot more than they're hurting Russia. So it's um it's going to be really interesting times over the next you know the next six months are going to be weird, but I think longer term it's going to be really weird. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's it's really really hard to crystal ball things, but um, you sort of if if everyone's been saying that volatility's been increasing for the last oh gosh um, decade at least, whether it's climate volatility, seasonal for farming, um, price spikes on the markets, petrol, bananas, you name it, whatever. But if you look at things over like very very long hundred year trend lines, they sort of generally head in the same direction and. Yes, the governments have printed more money, so the price goes up. But effectively, what they've done is they've deflated the value of the Australian dollar or the US dollar. Um, so we're getting less for it. Unfortunately, wages aren't picking up. But what we everyone has a job on the positive. Um, everyone enjoys a drink. Maybe everyone is also more health conscious than they were. I am starting to sense that Australians are very physical, mental health aware and um, are maybe trying to moderate their consumption, which is a good thing, you know, rather than binge drinking. So we're probably still going to see the same mega trends we spoke about before, premiumization. So instead of buying a slab of VB or Carlton and um, drinking on a Saturday afternoon at the, and watching the footy or the barbecue or whatever, feeling worse for wear on the Sunday and not mowing the lawns and not spending time with the children, people are saying, well, you know, maybe during the week I'll have a heaps normal so I don't, uh, so I can get up and function. And then in the weekend, I might treat myself to a four pack of my favorite craft beer. So, and when they do that value equation, the prices are still good. Um, but I think we're probably going to see consumption of alcohol and total drop. Um, and, but the quality of the spirit or the um, beer um, will improve. Yep. Yeah. So that, so that that to me says that the people that are going to suffer are going to be the major like the majors where where all the volume is and where all the you know there's going to be you know, your AB InBevs and and you know and and in Australia obviously CUB because if if the volume is being taken down and it's being more premium then that would make sense, wouldn't it? It's interesting you say that because um, a guy much smarter than me who was the founder of one of Australia's largest independent breweries, he's no longer independent, so you can do the guessing there, mm-hmm. um, told me that there's two two areas of the market where you can do really, really well. You could do really, really well if you're CUB or Lion um, who produce beer at absolute scale and very efficiently 
and they will always do well and they can also muscle up to Woolworths and Coles and sort of stand toe to toe with them and as the economy um, if times get tough and the tradie you know doesn't like the price of diesel and the ranger then they might trade back to a slab of VB or a slab of Lion 2Es or 4X Gold um, at the other end, there are people who, who have a lot of money and are always wanting the absolute best, especially cheese, the best sparkling wine, the best craft beer and things like that. It's if you're in the middle that you get hollowed out. So CUB's not going anywhere, um, Lion's not going anywhere, Sahi, um, or Sahi owns CUB now, and Cooper's. But if you're a middle sort of a craft brewer who maybe you started in Brisbane or Sydney and you're pushing into another state, if you're overstretching yourself financially and you don't have security over your immediate local precinct and you don't have your beer in every single bar and, 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 and your, your beers in every bottle shop and you're not making outstanding product for that top-end consumer, you're at risk. So it's the people in the middle uh, of that curve. And, you know, so it's like with bread making, you've got artisan sourdough mm. selling at $8 at your local regional bakery and then in the supermarket you can get something for half the price but it's only tip top or or vocals yep so i would say it's the mid mid-size people who are maybe a bit lost not sure what they're doing you know what their purpose is or reason for being so things like the more expensive bread in the supermarket might be the you know could be the you know the sufferer <laughs> no it makes sense it's it's always the middle class that get hollowed out <laughs> unfortunately that is happening yeah, that yeah is, okay. that's actually happening on a on a global scale, the middle class is getting hollowed out. It's happening in the United States as well. Yes. And but the middle class actually provides the wealth um, for a democracy. But um, yeah, that's that's another topic for another podcast. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, um, unfortunately, people that lead the countries and states have kind of forgotten about that a little bit. But mm. um, <laughs> which will be, you know, absolutely, it's a different conversation. But yeah, um, who? Uh, who in your in your in your beer career? Who yep. was um, who was the person that got you interested in beer? Yeah, interesting. Um, so, I mean, I've worked. I was fortunate enough to have worked in a large um, corporate brewery, which was Foster's, albeit on the um, sales and marketing side of things. And to their credit, they are you know still as um, Asahi slash CUB passionate, passionate brewers. So um, I remember we would have. Um, time at the Abbotsford Brewery and sensory training with Tina Panutsis who's still there and she's amazing and um, whilst you know you could sort of knock the big brewers for saying they just brew you know 10 different styles of lager they were very passionate about their lager and so I and I was fortunate I worked in the international side of that business so we looked after Asia um, exports and we were sort of tasked with the focus of selling fosters through Asia so we had a lot of, um, jokingly referred to as all the older brewers who'd been put out to pasture, but they were really, really good brewers who'd been there for 25 years. So they um, they also installed in me the value of quality and, um, you know, how to taste beer properly, um, appreciate it, and, and how to uh, match it with food. But um, I tend to follow, like, I, I don't follow individual brewers. I love all the brewers in Australia. Um, I do love... Uh, a lot of the brewers from the US and Europe as well and I've always gone to the Home Brewers Conference and they have really cool brewers come out um, from the US and the UK so they had John Keeling come out from um, uh, from England from Fulham's um, sorry from London Pride and, and um, 
Cheswick Bitter and all that sort of thing, um, which follows brewery in London. And he was just an amazing guy. They had Vinny come out from Russian River, Mitch Steele was at Stone and that. And um, and I met people like Matt Brindleston from Firestone Walker. And all of those brewers, just like we've got amazing brewers here in Australia, are just incredibly passionate about beer. Like some people would say, oh, the last thing that person wants to talk to you about is beer. But I sat next to Mitch Steele at the Australian National Home Brewers Conference and bent his ear for about two hours over dinner about beer. And he just kept listening intently and asking questions and talking back. And it's because they're so passionate about it. So I always say to people, you know, don't get into craft brewing or craft distilling unless you're passionate about it. Because like we mentioned before, the business challenges are tough. Um, so you need to be good at your game and, and, and just have that passion to override the tough moments. Yeah, I think the people that get into it for the economic reasons and economic benefits, it's the wrong reason. It's You, yeah. you do need to be... Um, you do need to be one hundred percent all in. Yes. You can't. It can't be a side thought. It can't be a no. second business. It needs yes. to be everything. Yes, it seems. Yeah, it is. It is because if you think about it, um, who was listening to the other day? They were talking about um, oh, the value of um, brands. So Coca Cola is a product, and it was the world's most valuable brand. And and the um, the old argument was it was always one within. Um, so Richard is probably a Coke in, in, in your fridge here. Um, it is at Greg's house, so probably not. He's, okay. um, his body's a temple. Okay, he might be a Pepsi Max man. But um, the, that's been overtaken by Apple. And if people keep thinking that um, Apple is a um, hardware company, and they are, they make amazing laptops and all that, but it's really the software that um, that, that, that got the adoration and locks everyone in. And so when you talk about getting rich brewing, you're not going to get rich brewing um, because – it's a capital intensive business where you have to keep buying stainless steel. Um, you have to employ a lot of staff. Software is going to get you rich much faster. You may, maybe you guys know that better than anyone. But, um, you know, I love zero accounting software. We use it at our business. We were born online. I love Shopify. Um, and once you build out a piece of software, the incremental customer acquisition cost is close to zero. But as a brewer, say you get your local postcode or your local region, say you're down the Ballerine Peninsula, and then you go, right, now we're going to attack Melbourne and get all the tap points in Melbourne. That costs you more to get those tap points because you have to transport it up from Torquay or wherever you are. Or if you're a Sydney brewer and you say, we want to move into Queensland State, you've got to pay all that transport cost. But with software, it's free to send it through the wires of the internet. Um, and then when you get more customers, you get more engineers and you build more features and you get a network effect. So, um, yeah, don't enter the brewing industry to get rich. I think that's that's the opposite. You're probably going to get poor. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting um, what you say with Apple. The, we, we look at it the same way. They they suck people in with the, with the shiny objects, but mm-hmm. they retain people by hemming them in almost with their, with their software. You can't leave the iTunes store. You can't leave yes. the App Store. Yeah. Everything, that's what retains. Yeah. And the, the shiny objects are the things that, that actually bring people to the, you know, to the party, yeah, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, so where's your business going to go in the next kind of 24 months? Yeah, it's, um, look, to be brutally honest, and I always try and be open and honest and transparent, it's, I've sort of said to everyone inside my business and outside my business, this year's going to be the toughest of the last three. Um, so 2020 was a bit of a shock to everyone, and probably a few of us drank our way through that, myself included. So um, th- that wasn't so bad. 2021, there was still some stimulus and that sort of thing out there 2022 we are going to see business closures so open full confession before I came here I parked the car a couple of blocks away and I walked around Chapel Street Pran just looking to see how many for lease signs there are and you know it's interesting I still see 
great innovative food businesses and people offering coffee out of windows, but I see a lot of empty real estate. Um, so, and and I've been out on the road in the last three or four weeks, um, everywhere from sort of uh, Reservoir, Preston, um, down the southeast today, and there is a lot of businesses closing. So I think, you know, hand on heart confession, I think a lot of people took the checks, and I think now they're winding up their businesses. So I think now more than ever, it's important you have something like pencil, and you have good... Um, good tight control over your trade credit um, and I'm telling all my great customers and Craft Brewing who are family and independent businesses to not um, sit by and let your margins get eaten up if your prices go up in terms of the inputs to your processes and you've done everything you can from a productivity efficiency point of view you have to lift your prices so for us at Beerco it's all about um, get the products that we know will sell um, price our products profitably but not high margin we've never tried to gouge our customers or anything like that ride through this wave I think the good thing about our industry is because predominantly those 650 craft brewers are independent and they're in there and and for one way or another the investors are in because it's not easy to liquid liquidate your investment um and same with the distilleries they will ride through this year mm. um but then I think we'll probably see um it really start to pick up in the spring, I'm hoping. You yep. know, people will start moving around, getting out to the regional holidays and having a beer and having a drink and um, the camping holidays are back up again, which is great. Um, so, yeah, I just sort of think to people, like my own perspective is to sort of listen, get, get close to customers, um, stay close to suppliers and um, run the – work the balance sheet hard, you know. Yep. Yeah. The um – the, any business with a shop front, any retail business, um, one of the one of the things that you know we predicted a cu- this a couple of years ago, and it was always going to come back and bite everyone on the ass is the fact that um, people weren't able to pay their rent, and then yes. th- and the government put in place a number yeah. of um, I guess a number of um, uh, pieces of legislation where you would that would the um, the landlord would have to negotiate with the tenant and yeah. all these type of things. Um, what what they didn't do though, they didn't plan for the fact that a local cafe or a restaurant or what have you that was paying a hundred grand of rent, their rent next year was effectively going to be two hundred grand yes. because they because it would continue to accrue. Agreed. Now they couldn't pay it off, and all this rent continued to accrue, and then you've got landlords who are asking for it and asking you to pay double repayments. It, it it's untenable to do it business is. that way, and it that's. Is. That's what that's my feeling is that's what the pinch is because yes. they didn't have to pay power, power for power while they were closed. That's there right. was all the other cost staff, the yep. staff cost went away. Yep. The only thing that didn't go away was rent, and yes. rents effectively just crept up and doubled yep. or, tri- yep. or probably two and a half times what it was. And it's just, um, it's it's impossible for a retail business to get out of that yeah unless they've they've got big capital backers it's just impossible so yeah. um this is a making of government closures it's yeah. a you know I've, I've done every other sum under in the book and there's nothing else in my head that um that that has had as such a capital effect and such a such a cash flow and a capital effect on retail businesses as the fact that their rent was unable to be paid and now they have to pay it and yeah. they have to pay the arrears and that's yeah. that's the killer i think if small businesses are walking away from you know um untenable leases and and if they have to unfortunately close and then 
reopen, um, then then good on them because that's the market operating the way the market should. I think the risk for our customers, our craft brewers and distillers, and I'm talking to you guys here, is make sure you don't go long um, with on-premise customers and extend credit and extend credit and extend credit um, and get played off against the next craft brewer and the next craft distiller because if, like you say, the fundamental underpinnings of their business are uneconomic because their rents are exorbitant, and they are, we all know that. Everyone knows that Australia, the, we have a big, big property problem. Um, it's too expensive for a, a residential and commercial property. Um, then that is a blowback. So that blows back to the craft brewer uh, craft distillery because then they can't pay their suppliers and 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 I guess that's where the tools that you guys sell and and the um, the, the software is really really important. So um, you know anything that collects the money efficiently and also anything that alerts um, small businesses to credit risk. You know I think this is the year that um, you know we will see those closures. Like you said, they kick the can down the road around uh, business closures. And that's a healthy part of the economy, to be brutally honest. You have to have businesses closes and, and, and then new ones open up. Um, and yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of that happen this year. Yeah, absolutely. The um, the hospitality industry was saturated three years ago. The, um, certainly cafes and restaurants, they, were just, they just opened everywhere. And right. um, there was always going to be a, a slight correction. But yep. obviously this... this um, the last two years, on top of it, um, have have corrected it, but they've yeah. um, they've obviously gone beyond that, and it'll get back to a point of equilibrium where there is enough um, there's enough business out there um, yeah. for the amount of places there are. Yeah. But right now, there's too many places for the number of people who want to go and dine. Okay. Um, that's just the reality. Okay. Um, but there's places closing everywhere. And, you know, as you said, you've just walked down Chapel Street this yeah. afternoon. Yeah. You know, we live, um, you know, both Greg and I live within earshot of Chapel Street and we've noticed, um, we noticed the South Yarra end. So yes. between Turak Road and Malvern Road was the first to go. Yep. That was 10 years ago yep. until say five or six years ago. And then the area from Malvern Road to High Street yep. went and yep. then now it's Windsor. So yep. um, as those rents increased, the market standard market conditions pushed back against it and people just wouldn't lease these places because the rents got too exorbitant yeah and they've told the you know they've told the the landlords what it is and i think the big commercial landlords mind you they've got plenty of cap plenty of uh, capital most of them yeah. but they're gonna really feel it like the city in the city half of the city office blocks are yeah. empty now that's right. And yeah. every single business knows that working from home is the future for part of their workforce. Yes. So the commercial real estate market is going to, unless they're, um, unless they're, um, they own their property outright, which a lot of them do, um, the ones that are leveraged are going to see some pain in the next little bit. And to be honest, it's, um, it's they've probably had it coming for a little bit um, yeah. with the with the amount that um, they've been requesting from from tenants. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it'd be nice to see rents drop and, and property prices drop because the reality is I, I, it, it's not a productive asset. It doesn't create jobs. Properties don't create jobs other than the builders who build them. Um, so Short we, term though, right? Yeah. So if we could have affordable housing in Australia and, and lower rents, um, we'll see more entrepreneurs have a go at a bar and a cafe and we'll see more people um, and who have money invest in um, startups. Um, so that's a big problem, but unfortunately it's politically it's untouchable in Australia and I think one in 
seven Australians have an investment property negatively geared and one in three politicians. So it, these are things you can't change about Australia. We're the second highest cost of doing business in the world um, behind Switzerland. And um, it's really hard when I'm trying to explain that to our international suppliers. They just can't understand how expensive it is here. And that has a cascading effect. So expensive rent um, means high wages so that people can afford to rent. Um, so I hope that um, we do see a property collapse as, as much as it'll hurt a lot of people um, because it will help business, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think the, the big buildings and the office towers like the, the NAB's got 10,000 um, spaces of office space in the city and it's only 3% occupied, but the reality is they're on very long leases. And the NAB's going to keep paying that lease. Mm -hmm. And they'll, they'll repurpose it and they'll figure it out and they'll sublet it. And that's just the market taking its course. I think the th key thing we just need to think about in um, small business, small and medium business, is, you know, be smart with your, um, uh, with your software choices and stay on top of your books this year. The, the, um, the biggest risk for small businesses is labour. Labour's the, the massive cost and it's the... It's just it's it's actually debilitating, certainly for service businesses, but even supply businesses. The labour, the, the you know everything is labour intensive um, to a point. Yeah. But um, and you automate as much as you can, but the cost of basic labour now is just crazy, and the government is continuing to to push wages to wages to go up, and yep. they will continue because yep. they're well, that's where all their voters are. Yeah. So we we get that. Um, it does make it very difficult for businesses, um, and that's every business across the across the across the whole gamut. Every yeah. business has people, yeah. um, so so I think um, there needs to be more incentive for small and growing businesses in Australia. I just don't think there is enough incentive. Yeah. Um, you work hard and you employ people, and um, you know, and it is it is tough at the you know the best and the and the worst of times. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, but I just think that um, the government does need to do something for small businesses because small business owners are the ones who are putting their ass on the line and taking all the risks yeah. and uh, putting everything they've got into it. And the amount of people that have lost a lot of yes. you know a lot of stuff over the last you know yeah. thirty six months, yeah. um, and you know there'll be no recouping any of that. They have to start again, yeah. which you know lucky business owners are durable. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's a it, it is a it is a it's a it's a challenge for the country. I think. Yeah, look, I think um, the small businesses, the government actually understands a lot more about them than they let on. So um, during the COVID pandemic, they did cash flow boost to small businesses and a lot of smart small businesses, you know, bought some capital equipment, like we bought a, a cool room and I call it ScoMo's cool room um, <laughs> because, you know, we, we wouldn't have been able to afford it otherwise um, to help store our hops and our enzymes and everything else. And I've seen that. So I think the smart small businesses will, will, will use those checks wisely. Um, I think the other thing is for small businesses is you've just got to play the hand that you get dealt, you know, and um, you have to be clever, like you said, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, Australians love having a go against all the odds, and there's a lot of great success stories coming out all the time. Um, I think you have to pay your staff at least minimum wage, if not better, and... Um, treat your staff with respect because they'll help help you grow your business but yeah just like you said try and automate as much as you can because we are in a high labor cost um country and stay up 
um, use use your if you're small and medium sized business use that to your advantage. So the breweries that have got tap rooms that tap into their community, like you mentioned, sponsoring the local teams and and connecting um, with local customers and and selling locally. Um, that's that's a that's a really strong barrier against big business. Um, and and everyone's in the same boat. So ordinary Australians want to support their local businesses. So the audience of this podcast is obviously breweries and you know I know yes. they're, they're one of your customer sets. You've yes. got one which is direct-to-consumer and yep. the other is breweries. Can yep. you, just to just to finish off, yep. can you give um, a little bit of a plug um, to Beer Co and just explain exactly you know, what, what, how, you can help, um, how you can help any breweries out there? Yeah, sure thing. Oh, look, in terms of what we do, Tim, um, it's pretty simple. We um, try and supply the ingredients you need to make beer and um, we also supply distillers. So... In the case of brewing, it's um, we supply malts. Um, we have local um, Victorian sown, grown, and malted malt, Europe Pilsen malt, malted down at Geelong. Um, it's beautiful, clean, uh, crisp, consistent Pilsner malt, and it's used by major brewers. and And I say to the small brewers, you know, the reason the major brewers are using that malt is because it's consistent and it's really well made. So I encourage people to buy that. It's it's more affordable than imported malts. We also import. Premium crisp malt. Um, we've been around for 150 years from the UK. That's where we're f- feeling a lot of stress with the supply chain and and Putin's gas prices going up. Um, and we sell Unigrain lo- locally malted cereals. Again, a family-owned company, um, the May family, um, in Smeaton, Ballarat. So we're encouraging customers to use them. We um, we don't import and sell hops, but we do resell a lot of different hops. So I'm telling customers preserve your ca- cash flow. So don't contract hops when demand's up and down or you don't know whether they're going to drink this beer next week or that beer the next week. Buy what you need for your brews this week or this month and and um, hops come in big sizes like 20 kilo boxes and they could be north of $800 to $1,000 for a wholesale price. Um, so if you only need three kilos, don't buy a box and put cash in the cool room. Um, we sell dried brewing yeasts um, that uh, from other wholesalers and we also import some from the United States. And then we're increasingly selling more what we would call adjuncts, interesting things like botanicals for distillers, but brewers use them as well, and um, aids like enzymes, which help make your brewery more efficient, and um, also flavours. So we're back to you know brewers jumping on new trends. We've seen um, some of our customers as far north as Brisbane who are entrepreneurial and have a great tap room they're thinking, well, I'm selling all this beer here um, and I can see there's a lot of people coming for lunch and the weekends or, or, or drinks after work who don't drink beer. Why don't I try making some seltzer because I've got the equipment I can make seltzer and that's really easy to, to make and we sell them the rice syrup and we sell them the flavours. And again, because they're in a tap room environment, they control or have you know a say over what the customers drink and they've seen a good uptake. So that's an incremental sell. Um, and then the other thing is just give us a call and have a chat. Um, you know, I'm unfortunately not going to extend trade credit or terms. Um, but if there are difficulties and problems and, and, and you're open and transparent, just like I am with our suppliers when we hit, 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 hit the wall, um, then, then just, just reach out and talk to us. Or if, you know, you've had a, um, supplier who can't supply you something, reach out. Cause I think this year is about, um, you know, mates helping mates um, in the industry and um, we're all getting back to normal, we're getting back to sports, we're getting back to kids back to school, we're getting back to our regular working week, maybe it's a split week like you mentioned, a hybrid Mm -hmm. week, a few days in the office, a few days at home, so you know let's just 
work together to sort of find out what that new normal looks like because I think we haven't sort of still found that. Um, but yeah, that's our plug. We um, we're always here anytime you can call us at the at the warehouse or, or, or email us at service at bearco.com.au. All our products are on online as well. Great, mate. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Tim. That was great. Thanks for the invitation. Awesome. Cheers.